Well, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to 1 Timothy, the third chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 3. On this happy occasion of receiving two new members, we are taking our time to go into a topical sermon on the glorious nature of the Church of Jesus Christ, to meditate on its glory, to understand why these two men long to join with the Church as that uh, that glorious picture that is here in 1 Timothy 3.15, where we find this, the church of Jesus Christ, to be the house of God. I'll begin reading in 1 Timothy 3.14. We'll consider 14 through 16 in the preaching of the word. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. These are the very words of God. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our holy God, we come to a text that proclaims the mystery of godliness and the glory of the house of God. Father, we come now to hear the word preached. We pray that you would help the minister who preaches, that he would not preach in his own wisdom and strength, but instead it would be the Holy Ghost that would use this man as a vessel to preach the word of the living God, that uh, his errors and his opinions would be put away, and only the truth of God would remain. Father, we pray for the congregation as well, that the same spirit that inspired this text, the same spirit that inhabits the praises of God's people, would be operative in their hearts now as they hear the word of the living God preached. And so we pray, Father, that unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, that grace would be given that I should preach among, to your congregation, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, as our elder prayed, recently Ligonier released their State of Theology survey for 2022. In it are many areas of grief, from the exclusivity of Christ uh, on the downturn to the diminishing of the divinity of Christ, to even gender being seen as a choice for God's people, this embrace of what society is teaching. There's so many areas where we lament and mourn this day. But for our services theme this morning, there is one particular area that stuck out, which is that only 68% of evangelicals believe that church membership is necessary. And that number has been on the decrease year after year. But not only is our theology of church membership being eroded away, and that's something I covered in a sermon not too long ago, and you can review that if you'd like. Not only is our theology of church membership being eroded away, but something worse has really happened, which is that we have lost our vision of the glory of the church of Jesus Christ. If we knew the glory that is laid out in our text and in other places in the Scripture, If we knew the glory of the church, we would seek to be part of it. We would know that the church is the house and family of God. 
And that the glory of the church is that the glory of God himself dwells in her in a special way. If we knew that, we would be like those that God prophesied of in the New Covenant in Micah 4.2, where nations would say, many nations would say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. If we knew the glory of the church, so that we might understand the glory of the church, our theme out of this text is very simple, which is the glorious church of Jesus Christ. To know the glory of the church will make us not only desire and yearn, as in Micah 4.2, to be joined to it, but also, as Paul told Timothy, the application of being in the church, we would know how to behave in it. So we'll consider our theme this morning under two heads. First is that the church is the house of the living God. And second, that the church is entrusted with Christ's truth. So first, the church is the house of the living God. For context, in the prior portion of this chapter, the apostle was describing the qualifications for church office. One of the reasons he told us that elders must manage their homes well is that they must know how to care for the house of God. Deacons as well. They are to also know how to care for the house of God. And then now here then in verse 14 and 15, to impress on Timothy these things. He says, these things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtst to behave thyself in the house of God. He says, it is imperative, Timothy, you must know how to behave in the house of God. And that is how the Holy Spirit would have us see Christ's church. It is the house of God. The house of God. It is not the elder's house. It is not the member's house, first and foremost. It is the house of God. It is God's. He sets the government of it. He sets the worship of it. He sets the doctrine of it. All of it belongs to God. And the people in the house of God are God's. It's all God's. And the expression house of God, as you well know, was not a new one. Right? It was used in the Old Testament. It was familiar with the Jews. In the Old Testament on the earth, the house of God was equated with the tabernacle and the temple after it. Uh, for instance, when Solomon had the ark brought into the temple when it was constructed, we read, this is interesting, the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. 1 Kings 8.11 What's Really, key there is that in the house of the Lord, the glory of the Lord dwells. You see that? The priest couldn't even stand. The glory of the Lord comes and fills the house of God. But then in the incarnation, of course, right? The house of God, the tabernacle of God was Jesus Christ. John 1.14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What made Jesus so glorious? He is God in the flesh. God tabernacled among men. The true house of God. The Bible says that in Jesus dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2.9 And it says we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
But now our Lord has ascended, so where is the house of God on earth? Verse 16 says and reminds us Christ was received up into glory. So our text says that the house of God is the church, the church where God's presence and glory dwells. Boys and girls, when he says the church is God's house, is he speaking of our building? Or is he speaking of any building particularly? No. Uh, we have to get that right because, right, in our time and place, we often say we'll drive by a, a church building and we'll say, look at that church, right? But we're speaking just of the building. But the temple of God, the house of God in the New Testament is never a building. The word church does not refer to a building at all in our text. The word in the Greek means an assembly. It's an assembly. The assembly of God's people. It is the Greek word ekklesia. It's the same word actually used to describe Israel in the Greek translation of the scripture. The New Testament will use that word for Israel too in Acts 7.38 called the church in the wilderness. The church in the wilderness. But the word more broadly in the Greek language means any assembly. But when it comes to the church, it has a special kind of meaning that is found even in the Greek word itself. Uh, some of you may know this, that ekklesia is a compound word. It is composed of ek, which means out, and kaleo, which means called. The called out ones. That's what that means. The church is a people who are called out of the world, come into God's house. 1 Peter 2.9 says the churches of those God hath called kaleo out ek of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what the church is as a society, friends. Those God has called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. All of you who have entered the church have left darkness and come into his marvelous light if your faith is in Jesus Christ. You have left behind, right? When you say, I, I enter the church, I leave behind the world, sin's dominion and Satan's bondage. I come into the very household of God with God in the midst of her as we sang in Psalm 46. Listen to the glory of being a part of the church in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye are also builded together for an, listen to this, habitation of God through the Spirit. A habitation of God through the Spirit, the church. Notice the ye, which is plural. It's not thou, in which case it would be singular. Y'all, as we might say in Texas, right, are together by the Spirit of the Lord, the habitation of God, his holy temple. All believers, this is the glory of the church, all believers are being built together as God's holy habitation. That's what makes, at the root of it, the church so glorious. God dwells among us, his people. That's why also we long to be with one another, don't we, in the assembly of God. We long to be with one another in the church and not just stay at home because we together 
have the presence of God with us. The glory and presence of the Lord is with us when the household of faith assembles. In 1 Corinthians 14.25, as I prayed at the opening of our service, it is in the assembly of God's people that the unbeliever hears the word, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report what? That God is in you of a truth. We must plead and beg, especially elders, for the Lord to keep his promise to be here in our midst. Because without the presence of the Lord, what use is this? Really, what use is this without God's holy presence? To understand this all, then, would help us know that the glory of the church, then, is not her elders. It's not her gifted ministers. It's not her money. It's not the program she administers. It's not her property or even her good works. Her glory is the glory of the God in her midst whenever we assemble. That's the glory of the church. For without him, what is the church? It is Ichabod. The glory has departed. Useless. The wonder of the church as we continue to meditate and ruminate on this is this, that the Most High dwells in a people and not a place. Right? Stephen preached what? Before his martyrdom, the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, Acts 7, verse 48. But imagine this, he dwells with us, his people. Take every building we meet in away, there will still be a church, for there are a people in whom his presence dwells. But of course, if you know the scriptures, you might have to ask the question, how could God dwell with sinful man? We're all sinners And we fall short of the glory of God. Habakkuk 1.13 says to God, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. If you know your heart and you know the sin that is there, you would ask, how can God dwell with me? How can God dwell with us? And the answer is in order to dwell with us, And that covenant of grace that we've been singing of these past two months in Psalm 105, 106, he gave us his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to be the mediator of the covenant, the God-man. He atoned for the believer's sin as a sacrificial lamb on his cross to reconcile us to God. And when he touches the Christian's heart to give them saving faith by the Holy Spirit, the Christian is made clean. Just as when he touched the leper and the leper was made clean. And it is in the church that the glory of God is manifest, but also Jesus Christ is held forth so that man may dwell with God. Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world is what John the Baptist said. And the same connection really can be made in the Old Testament, couldn't it? What was the house of God? The temple. And what was being offered in the temple? Animal sacrifices over and over again. Their blood poured out to God. Why? So that man may dwell with God to atone for the sin of God's people, that God may dwell in the midst of them, prefiguring Jesus Christ himself. And because of Jesus' work on the cross to reconcile God and man, God has given the God-man Jesus Christ the church. It is his. The house of God is the house of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 3.6 says, But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? 
You see how all these things tie together, friends? And in fact, there's another proof for the divinity of Jesus Christ. The house of God is the house of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail, he is saying, I will build my house, the house of God, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, praise God. So Jesus Christ is building the New Testament temple of God soul by soul, calling them out of the world, out of darkness, into his marvelous light. And in conversion, they are added to the marvelous house of God. 1 Peter 2.5 Ye also as lively or living stones are built up a spiritual house. Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone of the spiritual New Testament temple that is being built up, not of stones, but of souls. And you know, this is not a new innovation, right, in the New Testament. It was always God's design that Jesus Christ would build his house. Boys and girls, I don't know if you remember this, but do you remember where the house of God was first mentioned in the Old Testament? Do you remember where that was? It was at the place that Jacob called Bethel, which means in Hebrew, house of God, Genesis 28. And in a dream there, what did Jacob see? He saw God, the Lord, Jehovah, above a ladder with angels ascending and descending upon it. He woke up, right? And he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. How dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God, And this is the gate of heaven. What did Jesus Christ say about that? In John 151, And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus Christ is Jacob's ladder, isn't he? He is the only way to God. And you think of this expression, the gate of heaven. And so from the very beginning... Jesus Christ is shown to be the one who will build the house of God. And in our text here, coming back to 1 Timothy 3, Paul calls the church something very specific, which is that it is the church of the living God. Now, what a wonderful expression. The living God, he is alive. He is active in our midst. Right? This must be stressed because all the other gods in this world, as we think on the exclusivity of Christ, it, all the other gods in this world are dead and they are lifeless idols. Anything else that you might want to exert over God is dead. First Thessalonians 1.9, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. In him is life. What do we read? In him we live and move and have our being. If there was no living God, we would all be undone. We would be dead. And what we really, as we come to assemble as the people of God, what we we depend on is the fact that He is alive, that He is alive and active in the ministry of the Word. Why is the gospel the power of God? Because it is the Word of the living God and the gospel of the living God. It's not the Word of a mute idol. It is the word of a God who is alive. He hears our prayers. We just spent several minutes praying to him. Why do we pray? Because we pray to the living God and not to deaf idols. His ear is sharpened to his people, he says. And of Jesus, what does the Bible say? Praise God. He ever lives to make intercession for us. In this assembly then, 
We come to meet a holy, living God through Jesus Christ. Boys and girls, learn that early on in your life. You come here to meet a living God, a God is alive and is here to be glorified. He is, he is paying attention to everything that we do here. He is to be honored. And He has even come and He has condescended so low to us that He has come to minister to us, His people. You need to treat the assembly of God's people this way. We come to meet God. Another doctrinal matter is the blessing to know that the church is God's house. That has a familial aspect to it, doesn't it? A familial ring. For we say God is our Father and we are His household. And that means that the church is under His fatherly care and protection, friends. What did He say to earthly fathers in 1 Timothy 5.8? But if any provide not for his own and specially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So what do we get from this? God will take care of His people always. Always. The Lord will provide what His people need. Psalm 37, 25. I have been young and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. It also means that the church is a household of faith, isn't it? Where we are together, brethren in the Lord. We are brother and sister in the Lord. Galatians 6.10, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. The two men who are about to join us in covenant are our brothers in Christ. We are to do good to them. We are of the household of faith with God as our Father who is watching how we, His children, are treating one another. Let us do good to one another, for we are of the household of faith. Well, much more could be said on the church as God's house, the house of the living God. But what I will say then is, if you knew God, if you knew God, if you knew God as He is, would you not desire and long for it to be in the one society in which He dwells? And if we are in it, how privileged a people we are above all other peoples. Not because we have done anything in order to discover the church, but because God has translated us out of darkness and into His marvelous light all through His sovereignty. And then shouldn't we bless Him and adore Him that we are in the church and we are not left in the world and to have Satan as our father, but God as our father. Even though we do not deserve God dwelling with us because we are sinners, God has so graciously condescended to us by giving us His Son and then His Spirit. And you think of it, I had to spend several, several minutes just baffled by some of the texts in the Bible. You know, he doesn't begrudgingly do any of this. He has desired to do all of this, to dwell with his people. He speaks of the church in terms that frankly baffle me. I was reading and thinking on Psalm 132, and we'll sing part of it. Psalm 132, 13 through 14. For the Lord hath chosen Zion, he hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. Hard to understand, friends. Especially when God's people don't desire the church. That God does. That God does. This is an incredible thing. We must marvel at the truth of these verses, that we are his habitation. We, his people, he longs to dwell with us. 
We are his desire, a dwelling place for God Most High. And so when we remember the church is a people and not a place and a property, we bless the Lord that he dwells so closely with man by his spirit. And so again, I will say, when we think of Ligonier's survey, we have to say, if he desires to dwell among the church, should we not desire to dwell among the church ourselves? Should it not grieve us then that so few of us uh, desire to be a part of it? By faith, friends, when we assemble, you need to know God is here. God is here. He has promised it, and He is here. And we ought to be here. We ought to want to assemble where God is and where God has said, I desire to be here. When we come to the corporate assembly, we say we go to where God says He desires to be. Now, what a sad thing it is that his people often, not always, often have very little desire to be where he is. And yet he desires to be where they are. It is the presence of God and his glory that makes the church glorious. If a church, if the church was simply, and some have degenerated this way, was simply a society of knowledge, philosophy, and good works, without God in her midst, it would be nothing. There are many societies like that. There's some in my college campus when I was a young, younger man. But there is only one society in which God Most High dwells, and it is the church of Jesus Christ. Now, some applications, some more applications on the doctrine of the church before we move on. Paul wrote to Timothy saying, he wrote so that he might know how to behave in the church. That means that there are implications in how to behave in the church of Jesus Christ. So let's ask, how do we conduct ourselves knowing this is the house of God? First, as the church is a holy habitation for God, it is a holy house. It is a holy house. We are to be a holy people. You are called out of the world and separated unto God. What does Psalm 93 verse 5 say? Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. The church is a holy place. Ephesians 2.21 reinforced that and said, we grow into what? A holy temple of the Lord. The people of God, his house, they are to be holy as he is holy. Given the righteousness of Christ in our justification as we believe on the Lord, given the garments of righteousness and salvation, we are then to live as holy men and women as we are being sanctified by the Lord. And by grace, God supplies You, church, are to put to death sin and live for righteousness. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Listen to these words. Sometimes you might breeze over them. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple are ye. Holiness is vital, friends. The church is to be known for holiness and not worldliness. God says, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. That's why we plead with you constantly, turn from sin, turn from sin. Even if you have professed faith in the Lord, especially if you have professed faith in the Lord, even though you are not saved by a walk in holiness. Without holiness, the Bible says, no man will see the Lord. It is the fruit of saving faith. And we are to desire to walk in holiness. 
Because he says, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. That's why the Bible says, cast out the evildoer among you. The temple of the Lord is not to be defiled. Second, if God's glory dwells in the church, it must be about one thing above all other things, which is the glory of God. It's not about our personal glory. It is not about me. It is not about you. Together, we must be about the glory of God. Psalm 29.9 says, And his temple doth everyone speak of his glory. Boys and girls, your catechism, you know the chief end of man, which is what? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Comes out of 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. In the church, in the church, it is God who is to be adored and worshipped and served, not us. Whatever is done in the church must be done to the glory and praise of God. Third, we are not individually the house of God. We are collectively the house of God. We cannot be by ourselves, beloved. We cannot be away from Christ's body. Ephesians 1.23 speaks of the church that is his body, meaning Christ's body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. He, he fills the church, not just us individually. And we must not neglect what the bare meaning of the word church means. Assembly. We are an assembly of God's people. Hebrews 10.25 then says, we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Because we ought to know that the presence of God is with us together. Fourth, there must be a desire to evangelize. The church is not just a holy huddle or a holy refuge away from the evils of the world. In a sense, it is, but it's also a society that takes the the, the message of the gospel to the world so that the world is subjugated under the feet of Jesus Christ through the church. We are to call others out of darkness and into Christ's light. In Luke 14, 23, The servant of the master is told, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. Why? That my house may be filled. That my house may be filled. What does God desire? That the house of God would be filled. And Christ did not come to die for a few. He died for a great many. The father does not have a few children. His is a vast house. His house is filled and will be filled with a multitude no man can number. Every kind of sinner, every kind of ethnicity, every kind of language. (coughs) In Revelation 7, 9 to 10, listen to this vision. A great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. The church is a missionary society. How does God accomplish his means? Through the church, going to all nations, kindreds, peoples, and tongues, going into highways and hedges. To what end? God wants his house full, and full with a multitude no man can number. And you think of this, the Holy Spirit, right, who indwells the church. He is capable of not indwelling a a small number of people, a tiny portion of the world. If he so chose, he could fill every soul alive and not be constrained if he so chose. 
In the covenant of communicant membership, one of the queries our brothers will take soon is that they will seek to win others to him. Whether in their family or with friends or strangers in witnessing for Christ, they must seek to call others out of darkness and into the light of God's house. Fifth, we are not to fear not to be afraid of the world or providence, right? We, we listened recently last Lord's Day that we must fear God, but we are not to fear anything else. Why? Because God is with us. Isaiah 43, 5, Fear not, why? For I am with thee. Psalm 46, 5, we sang it. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. Like the burning bush, the church is aflame so often. Yet what did we read of the burning bush? Yet it was not consumed. Why? Because God is in the midst of her. If we are his house, how could we ever be moved, beloved? How will we not be helped? Fear was the sin of the, of the Israelites going into Canaan, wasn't it? Though they should not have feared because God was with them. We are not to fear men no matter how fiercely they oppose the gospel. Even when Jesus Christ gave us the great commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, what did he say? He said, Lo, behold, I am with you, always, even unto the end of the age. Right? In other words, he says, you are not to fear. Would you not take notice, child of God? I am with you. What is there to fear? Walk in holiness, take the gospel. When legislation opposes the church, as it does for our brethren in China and India, we say, God is in our midst, we shall not move, God shall help us, and that right early. Yet, it was not consumed, is what we say of the church. On these ways, then, we are to conduct ourselves in the house of God. Well, in addition to the church being the house of the living God, Paul teaches another doctrine of the church, and that's what we consider in our final heading which is that the church is entrusted with Christ's truth. He calls the church something truly remarkable, the pillar and ground or foundation of the truth. It is a spiritual building, this temple of God, that is founded upon the truth and is upheld by the truth. The truth, as it were, engraved upon her pillars as it was in Roman architecture. What's the truth? The truth of the word of God the faith once delivered unto the saints. What we must not say is that the church creates truth, that the church creates new dogmas, it creates new legislation. Is that what it means to be the pillar and ground of the truth? No, not at all. The Roman Catholic Church would treat this verse like that, saying it can legislate truth, regardless of whether it's found in the Bible or not. But the church ministers the truth found in and derived from the word of God. What is the motto of the church? Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. To the law and the prophets is what we say, right? The church is founded on the truth of the word and it is buttressed by the truth of the word. Which is why all you have to do is look at 2,000 years of Christ's power. As soon as a church, I don't mean the book, I mean just the, 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 the truth of it, that as a church jettisons the truth of the word of God, it crumbles and is destroyed. It may still even have a building. I drove by many buildings in Pittsburgh when I was there for seminary. Many buildings that were there. But once the scriptures were not handled as truth, 
That place has crumbled spiritually, and God's glory has departed from it. Now, the church, true, must minister all the counsel of God, as Paul said in Acts chapter 20, every bit of the word. But the greatest truth that is entrusted with, this is what we will close with, is what Paul calls the mystery of godliness. In verse 16, without controversy great is the mystery of godliness. And what that means is, uh, confessedly, something we confess. This is something we confess without controversy in the church. This is a truth that we confess as a confession. The mystery of godliness, right? We asked earlier on, how can God dwell with sinful man? The mystery of godliness. This is a mystery that cannot be revealed by general revelation. A mystery that cannot be revealed by all the probings into the depths of space or sea. The mystery of godliness. And we confess that in the scriptures and the gospel, the mystery of godliness is not concealed from us, but it is revealed to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Listen to it in verse 16. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. This is the mystery of godliness. God comes in the flesh in Jesus Christ, Son of God, taking on a human nature, taking on a true body and a reasonable soul like ours to obey the law in our place, to suffer and intercede in our nature, and even to have, this is a great mystery, a feeling of our infirmities, to sympathize with us in our affliction, to know what it is like to be a creature. For that the Son of God was born of a virgin, to reconcile sinners to God. You know, the truth even of the hypostatic union, right, and his mediation between, as the mediator between God and man, these are profound mysteries that the heavens could never declare to man. Truths that the web telescope and electron microscopes could never, ever discover, but revealed in the scriptures and entrusted to the church to preach. Paul says as well that the church confesses not only was he manifest in the flesh, God manifest in the flesh, but that the Son of God was justified in the Spirit. This happened when he was raised from the dead, and which is why the confession of the resurrection from the dead of Christ is necessary for us to be saved. Romans 1.4, And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ is declared the Son of God in power. He's not just a charlatan who died and was laid in the grave. Some madman who said, I am the Son of God, come to save sinners from their sin. No. He is truly the Son of God, justified in that way when God raised him from the dead. You know that he is truly the Messiah. Paul says, we confess as well that he was seen of angels. The church confesses that he was seen. Jesus was seen of the holy angels. But the holy angels, they cannot lie. And they know God. They know who the Son of God is. This is God in the flesh. And they sang when he was born. They ministered to him when the devil tempted him. They ministered to him in Gethsemane before his agony. And they gave him strength. What a thing the angels witnessed. The person of the Son needing aid in his humanity. For thousands of years, they only saw in the Son of God divine strength and power associated with his person. But then he comes in humiliation 2,000 years ago to save men. Things 
the Bible says the angels long to look into. Finally, the angels witnessed of him at the resurrection at the empty tomb. Small wonder that Peter says that these are the things the angels desire to look into. Things of the gospel is where the context is of that text, preached by the Holy Ghost, sent down from heaven. The holy angels are enraptured with what the gospel, with the gospel that the church proclaims, beloved, because they know that it was the God of heaven manifest in the flesh, and to them that is incredible. What a thing it would be for us to be bored of the very message that the holy angels desire to look into, friends, and are enraptured with the mystery of godliness, how they must marvel at the God of heaven they bow before, humbling himself in the incarnation to lay his head in a manger to come under his own law, the king of heaven, and suffer the indignities that man has brought upon himself, the curse, even death itself, that man, sinful man, has brought on himself to be nailed to a cross, to suffer the wrath of Almighty God and his humanity, to be resurrected from the dead, and then ascend, right, even. And they marvel at this too, that he has ascended in his, whole, in his human nature into the heavens to take his place at the throne as the God-man, the Lamb in the midst of the throne, the things that the angels long to look into the church proclaims as the mystery of godliness. And it says, God in the flesh was preached unto the Gentiles and believed on in the world. The message of God in the flesh crucified for the salvation of sinners, a message what that the world calls folly is even justified as true when you look at assemblies like ours, where at the ends of the, uh, the earth from where the gospel was first proclaimed, believed on by the Gentiles, Sinners of every kind have believed on this message that the church proclaims, showing that the power of the gospel is the power to save. Christ crucified for sinners, a message that is folly to the natural man, as the Spirit uh, converts the hardest of hearts. The chief of sinners all across the globe, friends, have been turned from death to life as I have. Such were some of you, the chief of sinners, such was myself, And it was through the preaching of the gospel that man believes this message. And the message is then justified and vindicated. And lastly, the church proclaims Jesus Christ was received up into glory. Forty days after his resurrection, he ascended bodily into heaven, Acts 1.9. And Daniel 7.13 and 14 shows us the scene from heaven's vantage point. We confess this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom. And where have you heard this? The revelation. And all, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, which is what? The church. That which shall not be destroyed. The church proclaims not just a risen Christ, but an ascended Christ who is seated at God's right hand, who has the scepter of God's power. All things are placed under his feet for the sake of the church, his body. Not by the sword, but by the preaching of the power of the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. This message is entrusted to the church as the pillar and ground of the truth. All who are joined to the church must believe this message. And the church must proclaim this message. It's not an abstract thing, though. Each one of you must believe it. Each one of you must believe it. 
And the question is, do you? Don't leave this place without believing it, friends. The two men who will take the covenant shortly have said before the session with God as their witness that they believe these things. Do each of you believe this? For without this gospel faith that God came into the world to save sinners, even the chief, and you must say, not only that, but for me, but for me, you are not saved. What is the reason you would resist such a glorious truth? Have you not seen that the church preaches a gospel of pure grace for sinners? Nothing for you to earn. Be reconciled to God in Christ and take this great confession as your confession. Would you all leave this place and say, I believe God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, even me, believed on in the world and received unto glory. You must believe the mystery of godliness and be saved. One last thing I wanted to deal with, and I know our time is short. How do you identify the church? You know, these men, they're going to join this congregation. But is ours the only true church on the earth? Is the RPCNA, the Reformed Presbyterian Church, the only true denomination? And the answer is no, of course. They will join as members of our local body as a local chapter, so to speak, of the visible church. But they are already part of the visible church. They are not going to be part of the visible church when they take the membership covenant. Why is that? Because they have professed the mystery of godliness themselves. And that is what makes them part of the church, the church that you can see. Our larger catechism teaches that the visible church is a society made up of all such as in all ages and places of the world do profess the true religion and of their children. Paul shows us the church this way in 1 Corinthians 1-2. Unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place, listen to this, in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. That's it, friends. It's that profession of Jesus Christ our Lord that makes you a part of the visible church. Profession of true religion. It's a grave error to say that the church, the visible church, is identified with a particular institution on earth. That's the error of the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox. They both say they are the one true church, and they say that salvation ordinarily is impossible outside of their boundary. Protestants actually say something very similar. You might know that. There is no ordinary possibility of salvation outside of, but listen to these words, the visible church. That's Confession of Faith 25.2. What is the difference between the Protestants and the imperial churches then? Those other two institutions demand that the church be identified with their particular institution. Right? Whereas Protestants call the visible church all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.2, and their children, 1 Corinthians 7.14. I was reading this week a book written by a former Eastern Orthodox priest who is now a Protestant. And he dealt with the usual attacks. And you may have heard this. And this is one of the reasons I want to treat this, though I'm going a bit over my time. He dealt with the usual attacks that the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics have against Protestants. They always want to demand, right, of Protestants, which of the, and they'll throw out a number, like 30,000 denominations is the true church. But the former priest appreciates the genius of true religion and Protestantism, which is that though there are many churches so long as they confess the same Christ and the same gospel, they are part of the visible church. 
That's why I, a Presbyterian, often quote a Baptist, Charles Spurgeon, and why Spurgeon, a Baptist, can quote Samuel Rutherford, a Presbyterian. We may be in error in different places, but that does not, that does not invalidate us as being part of the same church, visibly. Right? Not the same denomination. But it's not enough, and we'll close with this, to be part of the visible church by profession with the mouth. You must be in the church that is called invisible by believing in the heart. The visible church, yes, is a church of profession, but it's the invisible church, the elect you must be a part of. Those who are united to Jesus Christ with saving faith. The Bible puts it this way. You must be born again. John 3, 7. You must believe the message of the gospel in your heart. Romans 10.9 says, listen to this, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, that makes you part of the visible church, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, the invisible church, thou shalt be saved. You need both the profession, but the belief as well. All of you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to truly be saved and be part of that one church that ultimately truly matters, the invisible church of God. To be outside of the church is to be an enemy of God because of your sin. Come into the church and find God your refuge and not your enemy. The mystery of godliness has been proclaimed in this text, and you must believe it. All we can do then is marvel at the glory of the church. And I want you to remember this always, that the marvel of the gospel and the covenant of grace is not so much that we are saved, friends, but that God would dwell with us that God would be ours in Christ, that God would take us to be his own people, sinners who have forfeited all blessings. Again, Psalm 132, For the Lord hath chosen Zion, he hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. If you desire to dwell with God, you will desire, to, uh, you will desire and cherish the church of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. Because the end of the church, its consummation, is in Revelation 21.3. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. This is the end of our salvation, friends. And how glorious it is. And we hear what next? Because God dwells with us, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That's the consummation of the glorious church of Jesus Christ, to which all the child of God can say with the end of the book, even so come Lord Jesus. Amen. May the Lord grow our love for his presence in his church. Please rise for prayer if able. Oh, our Lord and our God, we desire, we say, say, let me say it this way, we say we desire your presence, O oh Lord, and yet we confess, Father, that our lives do not always reflect that truth. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for not desiring to be with you. O oh, Father, would you give us a hunger for the end of the book where God will dwell with us, where we will see you face to face through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, if we have this desire, help us to desire to be in the church. How we praise you for the mystery of godliness that is proclaimed by the church of Jesus Christ. 
And would you help us all believe that, Father? And for those of us who have forgotten our first love, would you help us to love Jesus again this day as we see the glory of the church? Help us to seek the good of Zion and to always seek her prosperity and her purity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.